Good morning, church. You don't have to do that. Uh, people here still don't know me. I'm relatively new. My name's Aaron. I'm the youth and young adult guy here. And I want to thank you guys because it is a privilege to share God's word, whether with you guys today or the preteens that I normally teach or the high school kids on Wednesday. Sometimes I still can't believe that I get to do this. This morning, we find ourselves in the middle of our church people series where we're learning to kind of navigate and walk out these brother-sister relationships in love for one another as fellow aliens in this fallen world that's not our home. We keep one eye fixed on the cross of Christ and the other fixed on eternity, and our aim with one another should be to help each other carry our crosses and stay traveling on the narrow road that leads to salvation. But I want to be real about the circumstance that we find ourselves in, is these relationships can be difficult, and for a few reasons. First and foremost is because we're all sick. We all have this cancer inside of us called sin, and Jesus is our good doctor. He's treating all of us at varying degrees of intensity and frequency in his way and on his time so that all of our sin may fall into remission. And we are all at different stages of our recovery journey. Another reason why these relationships can be difficult is because we're called to a different standard of love than the world offers. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount how the world loves when he asks us, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not the pagans love this way? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not unbelievers love this way? See, if it's up to us, we're going to seek out the people who are the most like us people who we vibe with or who most resemble or complement our own personalities. And we're going to avoid those who challenge us or who we don't think have anything good to offer us. But that is selfish love. That's love that the world offers, and it's not the love of Christ. In aiming not to stand before you guys a hypocrite, I can be guilty of this selfish love also. And to further expose myself, I can do this out of my own fear and insecurity, that it feels safer to just stay around those people who are most like me. And I have this tendency to isolate myself off from having to be vulnerable or real with people who I think may not understand. But our relationships here should be different. See, it's not us who chose each other, but it's God who chose us all to come here, right? He decided that we all have the right to be here. He chooses who's adopted into his family and who makes up the body of his bride. This body to which we are all called is made up of all different kinds of people. We all come to Christ from different backgrounds, 
with different life experiences and different levels of understanding with different temperaments. We all come to Christ with different trauma wounds and different sin struggles, and we all come to him with different talents and different spiritual giftings in order to serve a different function for the body as a whole. Now, if any of you have been keeping track, I just said the word different 11 times. See, all people are uniquely different, and that is by God's good design. We may not even be aware of it sometimes, but we all need each other in order to perform correctly. See, the foot may be the part of the body that hits the ground, but the foot needs the ankle and the knee and the hip and everything in between and up above in order to run correctly. I don't care how healthy the foot is while sitting on the sideline. If your hip's out of socket, you're not running the race, let alone reaching the finish line. This concept gets explained to us several times through the scriptures, and when we let this truth sink in, it can really cut through our pride and help us to shed our ego. I love the way that Paul the Apostle speaks. He's not shy to say the hard things directly, and sometimes he asks us these probing questions where he's kind of feeding us the answers while asking the questions. He does this in 1 Corinthians 12, if we could turn there. And I know Stephen read this last week, but there's nothing wrong with reading the word of God more than once. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When it's laid out plainly, it's easy for us to understand what God is doing in the building of his church. That 
God chose many different kinds of people to all come together and serve him and serve one another in love using our own distinct and uniquely beautiful selves. When we're asked direct, direct questions like, can an eye hear or can an ear smell, we automatically understand these answers as obvious. But when it comes to one another, do we hold true to the concept? When told that an eye can't say to the hand nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you, we understand this by examination of our own bodies. But how easily can we dismiss other people this way? As I'm positive that we all have through this life, I too have found myself with relationships on both sides of this coin, both as the offended and the offender, both as the one rejected and the one doing the rejecting, the wronged and the wrong. And my fleshy pride tells me to do nothing on either account. Sometimes I can even deceive myself into thinking that I need to not do anything, and everything will just kind of work itself out, but it isn't the heart of God for us to avoid pruning and refuse growing. The heart of God desires humility in our growth. See, the truth is that we're all growing at all times, either strong and tall up towards the sun or twisted and gnarly, competing for light through the shadows. One of these forms of growth produces fruit. The other is thirsty for nutrients. So what do we do then? When someone sins against us and we have cause for offense or if we're the offending party, the latter is an easy answer with a difficult and humbling action behind it. First, go to God and confess your sin. Seek his mercy with a contrite heart and turn from it, and he will forgive you, I promise. Then you go to the person. Own your sin. Seek forgiveness. The former is also a relatively easy answer and sometimes even a more difficult action step behind it. We find this answer in Matthew 18, if we can turn there. Jesus gives us this right after, or right before, rather, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, 
There I am among them. Guys, I want to walk through this passage and kind of break down some of the beautiful principles of love that I find tucked away in these words. But before I get too far into it, I want to clearly state that the goal of biblical confrontation is reconciliation. That for people to come together and work through these barriers that are hindering loving fellowship. First, we must take note that the heart through this process is one of understanding and reconciliation. We're aiming to maintain healthy and godly relationships with one another. And the aim of our heart through it all is one to heal and restore the relationship, both with each other and between one another and God. We don't do this with a malicious heart, and we don't intend to cause harm, though sometimes it may feel like it's harmful. Second, we see that these judgments are of sin and not of our own making. It's if our brother sins against us, which would fall in line with scripturally immoral behaviors and not legalistic or arbitrary judgments that we come up with, and certainly not because of our preference of who we wish they would be. Thirdly, we see that confrontation in and of itself is not sin. In fact, sometimes confrontation is the only way to reconcile a relationship and break down the walls of habitual hurt from unrepentant sin. If you guys remember the last time I preached, I expressed boldly that because of our love for one another, we confront that sin. In fact, ignoring the person or writing them off or cutting them out of our lives can very easily become the sin. That the heart to dismiss another person without effort to deal with whatever issue is causing tension or even to gain understanding and perspective is actually displaying a heart that doesn't love that other person. Next. We see that we are first to go to our brother alone to confront whatever issue may be causing tension. I think there are several reasons for this. One may be that they don't even know that they've caused offense to us. How frequently does that happen? Maybe another reason is to avoid embarrassment and preserve our brother or maybe to diminish unnecessary escalation or defensiveness, or to allow them to be honest in their repentance. But I think the most simple answer is because an issue between two people who love each other should be able to be resolved between those two people because they love each other. We see that the goal here is to gain our brother or more plainly, to restore that relationship. Again, the goal here is reconciliation between people. It's not winning a fight or imposing our will over another. If our brother listens to us, we have gained him back. Meaning, if the offender is receptive to our rebuke, which is that Bible word for correcting wrong behavior. And our brother also desires reconciliation, and they own their sin, and they seek forgiveness. 
then we forgive as Christ forgave us, and the issue is over. We hold no record of it, and we move forward together in love. We can take note here that we are talking to our brother and not about them. We aren't gossiping about the issue or putting them down behind their backs, but we are speaking to them directly to resolve the issue. But if our brother is prideful and refuses to listen to us, then things will naturally escalate. In this case, we take one or two others with us and rebuke them again so that our charge against them may have witnesses. Again, our heart is trying to restore and reconcile. If they still refuse to listen, then things escalate again, and now it gets taken before the church. This is a last-ditch attempt to gain back our brother. If the one causing the offense is still unwilling to listen and maintains their pride over an issue, then we treat that person as a tax collector or a Gentile. And I want to touch on that concept. To treat someone as a tax collector or a Gentile is not to treat them as if they're the devil or some possessed person or someone for us to condemn. We are to treat them as the mission field, to look at them as lost. We're told to love our enemies as Christ loved us while we were still enemies of his. He did this by dying for us. We're told to bless. We're told to pray for. Not to condemn. To show them love and compassion. But our relationship with them moving forward is no longer intimate like a loving family relationship. We don't fellowship the same way. But we don't write them off as irredeemable either. Remember when Paul cast a man out of the church so that Satan can destroy his flesh. It was still with that heart and intent that God may save his soul on the last day, right? Love is still the through line here. Just a little bonus teaching as we're walking through the passage. There's a sentence in here that can be used out of context, and I just want to clarify real quickly. Verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven is clearly in context talking about church discipline between two people according to sin. It's about upholding the standards that the king has given for all of us to follow. It's not about condemning the person. It's about binding sin and loosing righteousness. And that's why it says whatever and not whoever you bind. Immediately after Jesus gives us this teaching about how to resolve issues and confront sin between us as believers, that's where Peter asks Jesus how many times we are to forgive. And Jesus' response is one of perpetual forgiveness to the ones seeking it, even if they may continue to stumble or struggle through that sin. I think Luke 17, 3 and 4 sums this up really well. 
It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is displaying that heart of God in patience and forgiveness and long-suffering and unity. But it's also displaying a heart in man that is acknowledging his own sin and working toward repentance. See, both people are displaying the same desire for maintaining the relationship, and both are acknowledging the same standard of right and wrong, even if one may be struggling to uphold it. There's not pride in this exchange. There's no justification for our sin, and there's no avoidance of the problem. There's just unity under Christ and mutual love for one another according to his standards and guidance. We see a point here that I think is really important. Forgiveness is something that we do within our own hearts. And guys, we should. But reconciliation takes both people who have mutual love and mutual value for each other in order to work. It takes both parties who want to make it work. There's mutual effort put into healthy relationship. It isn't one person having to work really hard to be better for the relationship while the other puts in no energy. And it's not one person saying, I will not change, so you must change and be okay with the way I treat you. Those are unhealthy relational dynamics. But because we're all different and not only that, because we're all fallen sinners, we are bound to cause offense to one another in some degree at some point. That's just a byproduct of being a sinful human. We fail each other. We harm each other. And we cause offense. So when one of our brothers or sisters in Christ comes to us to rebuke or correct us or even to tell us about how we have offended them or caused harm, we should ask ourselves in that moment, should I be offended right now? I've done something to hurt them. They're coming to me for it. Do I have the right to be offended? Or should I aim for reconciliation? See, we all have the ability to get offended when we should not. And unfortunately, we live in a world that is increasingly more easily offendable. But as for followers of Christ, we ought to be different. As Stephen said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is the only one who can live up to that expectation of perfection. But we should be a people striving behind him and putting our flesh to death. But we all fall way, way short of his glory. One of my favorite and most encouraging quotes comes from Pastor Jeff Durbin where he says, Becoming a Christian does not make us instantly sinless. But through the grace and work of the Holy Spirit, we sin less and less and less. Our hearts as followers of Jesus should be one that is aiming toward reconciliation and repentance. It's the heart that loves, 
the one that aims after peace and healthy relationship with other unhealthy people just like us. And just as God has given us the task of proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation to all people and planting the seed of salvation that is only found in the shed blood of Jesus, he has also given us these guidelines as to how we are to strive after reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.11 through 6.13, Paul gives us this nice explanation as to how we are to conduct ourselves as half of the reconciliation process. How we are to carry ourselves in conduct while proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation. And how we should be displaying the heart of Christ, reconciling all things to himself and walking in step with the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God." If we are in our right minds, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all of us have died. And he died for all. That those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, 
the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through both honor and dishonor, through both slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Guys, that is just beautiful. Jesus in order to reconcile us to himself in all of our sin and all of our darkness and all of our offense against him does not count our trespasses against us. He does not keep in his pocket a list of our wrongs and use that list to refuse forgiveness and avoid reuniting with us. Though he will confront us with that unrepentant sin, that aims to keep us from that reconciliation. Hebrews 12 tells us this, that we are chastened and sanctified because of his great love for us. That he's cleaning us up of our sins before him and he gives grace to the humble who recognize our need for salvation. But guys, sanctification doesn't feel nice. Being confronted doesn't feel nice. But remember, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields that peaceful fruit of repentance for those who have been trained by it. My brain always goes to Jesus confronting that rich young ruler, right? And we're told that he loved him by confronting that thing that was gripping his heart and keeping him from relationship with God. He said, go get rid of that stuff, then follow me. The invitation to follow after him while confronting our sin is the love. To those of us who are poor in a righteousness of our own, we come to the feet of Jesus seeking mercy and grace. And he makes us rich by giving us his righteousness. This is what's meant in verse 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, this is that great doctrine of substitution. That on that cross, Jesus was judged as if he lived my life. And he bore that death that I rightfully deserve for my sin. So that on that day that I come face to face with God Almighty, I get judged as if I lived his perfect life. He paid my fine 
so that I might be set free. This was given as a free gift. We can't earn it. So what kind of servants of his would we be if we tried to make others earn from us what we could never earn from God? This should not be something that we take lightly. This is not an excuse to live in any manner we want. Remember, guys, we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And his blood bought us with a price. Children of God, let us widen our hearts. Let us put away that sin and that pride that clings so closely. Let us die to ourselves and let us live for Christ as new creations. Let us persuade others in the knowledge of truth and lead one another to the saving grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us aim to reconcile under his authority because it's good and right and true. Let's run this race together as one body with one mind, with one heart and one aim. And that's to tell of and display this great love found in the redemptive work of Jesus. For if one suffers, we all suffer together. And if one rejoices, we all rejoice together. Guys, let's pray. Father God, we come to you today as one, proclaiming your goodness and knowing our need for your salvation. Father, remind us that though we have nothing, we possess everything because we know you. Father, help us to be conduits of your love and not vessels holding on to it. And help us to pour into others the way that you pour into us. Help us to confront in love. And help us to help each other follow after your son. In his name we pray. Amen.